All right, the struggle is real. If you've ever been on a mission team or you ever prepared to go on a mission trip, man, you, there's struggle before, there's struggle there, and there's struggle when you get back. But here's the deal about mission teams. Man, it's awesome because you never see your world the same when you get back. What you're looking at now is some video clips from a couple of our mission teams. This is a Nicaraguan team. They partnered with Mount Zion Baptist Church and Ebenezer Baptist Church for a four-day summer camp on a small island right outside of Nicaragua. So they were able to invest in these kids. Also, we just had a team return from the Dominican Republic. They partnered with Compassion International in the Child Survivor Program. And this Child Survivor Program is funded. Robert Ridge is one of the people that fund that. And it helps mothers uh, at risk and children that need medical assistance and spiritual guidance. We also had two teams that just returned back in the States yesterday. One was a family mission trip at Florida. They ministered to families and and children that had cancer in their families. And also, we had a Honduras team return. Now, you may notice some of the people in this picture right here. Uh, These are all folks from Rockbridge Chatsworth. Uh, Yeah, that's a good place to clap. That's cool. Yeah, that's Brandon, Shane, Andrew, Brittany, Emily, and Daniel. And they're leaving in the morning right here at 4.30 in the morning to Ukraine to go to Lviv, Ukraine. They'll be teaching an English conference in Lviv, Ukraine, which is a university city. Uh, My daughter, Mackenzie, is already there. So uh, they'll be meeting her and some other Rob Bridgers there. Just teaching, but also pointing people toward Jesus. So this is just a cool thing. If you see those folks in the lobby, if you see them around, hey, tell them you're going to pray for them or pull them off to the side and pray for them. Now, I got these two solo cups in my hand. And, you know, last night during the the fireworks here in Murray County, some of y'all may have had a solo cup. (laughs) You're going to have one. (laughs) You're gonna have one. You're, you're gonna have one this Fourth of July. You're gonna have a. They probably be sweet tea in. But here's the thing. These cups kind of represent all of us in here. You see, I I put some I put some letters on here to remind me of who they were. This cup right here, it's half full. This cup right here is half empty. There you go. So we got a half full cup and we got a half empty cup. Now, here's what I've learned. All of us are either one or the other, okay? We are blessed here at Rockbridge Chatsworth. We have an awesome staff. I think we have one of the best staffs ever. One of our staff people, uh, they're a half empty person. And the rest of our staff... They're half full. So you may be saying, where is this going? Well, here's where this is going. Those of us who are, who are half empty, and, and I'm that one person on our staff, all right? I'm the half empty guy. And when you're the half empty guy, here's what you do. You look at things in a critical manner, not necessarily negative, but you look at things in a critical manner on how you can get better, on how you can improve, And you're always just seeing things through that lens on how you can get better. Now, the awesome staff that we have here, the rest of them are half full, all right? 
So that's an awesome balance between me and the rest of the staff because the rest of the staff is always like, man, it's going great. Man, we got stuff going on. Nothing's a problem. We got it going on. There's some things we need to tweak, but everything's going good. All right? So with me being critical and observing and surrounded by folks that are half full, that's an awesome balance. Now, let me show you where that can get out of whack. For those of us who are half empty, and you know who you are, for those of us who are half empty, here's what we have to guard against. We have to guard against pride. You know why we have to guard against pride? Because we look at things in a critical lens, and we have to guard against pride because we think we have all the answers. And we rely on ourselves to make things happen. So the danger in this is pride. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, The Struggle with Pride, It's Real. Now, that's pretty easy to identify the half-empty folks having pride issues. But here's the challenge. Some of y'all in here are half full, and that's awesome. What you have to guard against is being half full is that you suppress everything. You don't deal with problems. Actually, you have full folks, if you don't watch it, you'll believe everything is unicorns and rainbows in Margaritaville every day. So there's challenges being half full, and there's challenges being half empty, and both of them have to do with pride issues. Now, let me unpack this for you. One of the things that I battle with every single day is pride and spiritual pride. As a matter of fact, I got a book on it. Humility, True Greatness, all right? About six or seven years ago, I had a guy recommend that book. And I read it. And I'm like, Dude, that was a great book. And I'm well. And he goes, well, you need to read it again. Because you're just prideful now because you said you completed this book and you're humble. See, that's the thing. That's the challenge that we have to uh, fight for, uh, for those folks that are prideful is that when we get it figured out, we tell everybody, I got it figured out. So here's what I did. I had to go back and read the book again. I had to read it again. So I've read it about three times, and this is a book filled with Scripture. This is a book that helps you identify spiritual pride. But better than the book. We got something better than the book. We got God's Word itself. So today, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to look at some spiritual pride. We're going to look at some pride of some religious folks. So in Matthew chapter 9... This is when Jesus called the apostle Matthew to follow him. Now, right before Jesus had an interaction and an encounter with Matthew, Jesus had just healed a man that was paralytic, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the scribes had an issue with Jesus because he said, I forgive you your sins. Because they didn't think a man could forgive anybody their sins. Well, what they didn't realize is that Jesus was 100% man, and 100% God. So Jesus is about to have an interaction with Matthew. And the thing about this story is this. Matthew is the one 
that penned it. Matthew's the one who wrote it down. So it's coming from his lens also. So we're in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, the struggle with pride, it's real. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax office. Now let's just push the pause button right here just a second. Matthew is Jewish. Matthew is sitting at a tax office collecting taxes from Jewish people that live in Galilee for the Roman government. You see, Matthew is a tax collector that works for the enemy. He's a traitor. He works for the Roman government. So he's hated, he's despised by his own people. And he saw Matthew sitting in a tax office. And he said to him, he be Jesus, he said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. Now, if you just go on to the next verse, you know, it's kind of natural to do that. But I'll just, I just want us to press pause here also again. You see, when Jesus looked at Matthew behind that tax office and he said, follow me. Matthew didn't ask any questions. He didn't ask why. He didn't ask what's in it for me. He didn't ask what about my family. The text simply says, and Matthew simply wrote, that he said yes to Jesus with his actions. And he got up and followed Jesus. Verse 10, while he, that's Jesus, was reclining at a table in the house, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests. So this is cool. There's a party going on. There's a banquet going on. Matthew invites everybody he knows. The thing about it is everybody he knows are tax collectors and sinners. It's an all walks of life party. Every Sunday, we have an all walks of life party. Because here at Rockbridge, man, our mission is this. To glorify God by connecting people from all walks of life to life in Christ. So this is a reflection. And we hope that every Rockbridge campus, we know that Rockbridge, we know that the Chatsworth campus is a reflection of all walks of life. So while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, Pharisees, religious folks, religious pride, they check all the boxes, they do all the things religious people are supposed to do. They also identify that, hey, we only hang out with people that are just like us. So check it out. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. Now, they were cowardly because they didn't ask Jesus, but they asked his disciples, Where does your te- why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, this question is a reflection of their heart because they didn't see any rabbis. Jesus was known as a rabbi, as a teacher. They didn't see anybody hang out with all walks of life. They certainly didn't hang out with all walks of life. So they asked a question, but it was more like a condemnation question because Jesus was hanging out with the folks that weren't like him. They weren't like the Jews. And it says, but when he heard this, Jesus heard the question. He said this, 
Those who are well don't need a doctor. When Jesus said those that are well don't need a doctor, he was referring to the Pharisees. Here's why. They were well in their own eyes. They did all the religious stuff. They checked all the boxes. They did everything that a religious person was supposed to do. Those that are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. You see, all those folks that are around Jesus, he called them sick because they needed something. Not physically, but they needed something spiritually. And he looks at the Pharisees and he says this in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. So he's going to speak directly to the Pharisees to something they know exactly what it's about because it's in the Old Testament. And he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy means this. A person is guilty. They are convicted of whatever they're convicted of. They're convicted of a crime. And they're in line to be punished. But mercy is simply this. You're given a pardon. Or somebody takes their place. They do not have to receive their punishment. You see, that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. He died for sin so that we wouldn't have to die for sin. He took our sin upon him and upon the cross. He gave us mercy. He paid a sin debt for us. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, the sacrifice power was for the Pharisees because they thought everything they did was a spiritual and a religious sacrifice toward God. So he said, go and learn what that means. And Jesus ends with this statement. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. You see, he was identifying the Pharisees as righteous. Self-righteous. Righteous in their own eyes. And basically he said, I didn't come for you folks who think you got it all figured out. I came for the folks who know they don't have it figured out. I come. I did not come for the righteous, but for the sinners. Let's pray really quick. Father, we've read your word. Lord, I pray in the name of your Holy Spirit. God, you'll soften hearts. You'll open up minds. God, we'll just receive teaching on pride. And God, not only will we receive that teaching, Lord, but we'll put it in. We'll put it into practice as we take steps towards you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we have to have a working definition. We have to have a working definition of pride. Pride is a sinful, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Now that definition of pride uh, came from the author of this book, uh, C.J. Mahaney. And uh, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C. He identified that he had spiritual pride issues in his life. And basically, the bottom line is this. When we're a prideful person, we take 
the position of God. One of the Ten Commandments Moses wrote down was this. God says, do not have any other gods before me. See, the thing about this is a prideful person, your God is you. My God is me because I put my position and my knowledge, my dependence upon me before I, before I look to God for that position and that dependence. I put myself on the throne. That's what prideful people do. We think we have all the right answers. I've looked at my wife before when we first got married and we had an issue in our, in our family and, and it's something that, that's on me and we got to handle and she's worried about me and I'm like, hey, I'm Superman, I can handle that. What a prideful thing to say. Because here's what I just said. I can handle the situation without God. See, for Christ followers, he wants to be in the middle of those challenging situations. So we're going to focus on pride. And we're going to, I just want to ask you just to open up your heart and open up your mind. And let's just kind of swim in the text just a little bit. So we're going to look. We're going to look at. Uh, we're going to go through the Bible, and we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to look at pride as a glance through the Bible. So we're going to start. We're going to start. Probably most Bible theologians believe this. We're going to start before the earth was ever created, and we find that in Isaiah, and we find it in Ezekiel when we find the earliest pride sin, and the earliest pride sin was committed by Lucifer, Satan. The devil. Lucifer was a created being. God created Lucifer. And in the heavens, Lucifer wanted to become like God. God. In Isaiah 14, it says this. For you said to yourself, this is Lucifer speaking, Satan, the devil. I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will set on the mount of God's assembly. In the remotest parts to the north, I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Lucifer wanted to be not just like God, but above God. This next text is in Ezekiel. It's not on the screen, but I'm going to read it. It's just God speaking to Lucifer. He says, your heart became proud because of your beauty. For your sake and your splendor, you corrupted your wisdom, so I threw you down to earth. Lucifer and a third of his demons were cast out of heaven because of their sinful pride. They wanted to become not just like God, but above God. And here's the thing. You may be sitting there saying, well, I, don't have anything, I don't have anything in common with Lucifer or the Satan or the devil. Well... If you're prideful, we do. Notice I'm saying we, okay? Because here's the thing. When I make decisions and leave God out of it, I'm prideful. I put God ahead. I put, I put myself ahead of God. And that's the prideful part of that. That puts me on the throne. Let's keep going. In the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent, the serpent is Satan, the devil, Lucifer. Was, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had ever made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So Eve is speaking truth of what God had told her. Check it out. Verse 4. No. You will not die, the serpent told the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, the serpent, Satan, he appealed to Eve, Adam and Eve's pride that they knew the boundaries, but they also probably knew better than God. So they put themselves above what God had told them and led them to do. So pride in the garden. Let's keep looking. We're in Proverbs chapter 6. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These are called the seven deadly sins. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes. Number one on the list. Arrogance. Pride. Arrogant eyes is number one. A lying tongue, hands that shed blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to turn to evil, a lying witness that gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among the brothers. So of those seven sins, the very first one that's mentioned is arrogance or pride. A theologian, John Stott, he said this. He said, pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is, it is in itself the essence of all sins. It is the core of all sins. It's the center, C-N-T-E-R. It's the center of all sins. Pride is the motivation and the cause behind all sins. Let's continue in Proverbs, God's view of pride. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone, uh, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to God. I assure you, he will not go unpunished. You get the picture? God doesn't like pride because it puts... Us puts me and puts you in front of God because we call the shots. Now, we're going to transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament to 1 Peter. Peter knows a thing or two about pride. As a matter of fact, if you just kind of look through Peter's life in the Gospels, he's always asking prideful questions and defaulting to pride. As a matter of fact, we know Peter is the one who denied Christ after he was arrested. You know why Peter denied Christ? It was self-preservation. He put his prideful self in front of confessing Jesus as the Son of God. So Peter knows a thing or two about pride. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 5. And Peter writes this as an epistle, a letter. 
He says, in the same way, young men, be subject to elders. Now, he's coaching men. He's coaching young men. He says, hey, guys, you don't have all the answers. Submit to the older men in your church so they can teach you. And he says this, and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. You know what that means? That means take off that pride. Get rid of that pride, confess that pride, and put on the coat, the cloak of humility, the clothing of humility. And there's a why. Because why? Because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that you may be exalted in the proper time, casting all your cares upon him, because... He knows you. So we've just identified all the way through Scripture what God thinks about pride. There's, there's, no, you know, there's no gray area there. So here's what I want us to do in the next few moments. And this is not going to be pleasant, okay? Because one of the things that we're going to do in the next few moments, we're going to identify seven sneaky symptoms of pride. Now, these seven symptoms of pride were first identified, were identified by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher in the mid-1700s. He wrote out his sermons in manuscript. He stood before his congregation, and he read those sermons in a monotone voice. And the Spirit of God fell on the congregation in Connecticut and New England. Jonathan Edwards was a servant of God who denied himself and saw the first great awakening in the United States happen in New England. It says there are estimates that over 10% of the population turned to Christ during the first great awakening. And this is one of the sermons that Jonathan Edwards preached. Seven sneaky symptoms of pride. And just as applicable as they were in the 1700s, Man, they're just as applicable right now. So here's some things. People that have pride issues or symptoms of pride, man, they're fault finders. They find fault in a lot of things. That's way over here on the half-empty spectrum. You're critical. You find fault in everything. Why do you find fault in everything? Because you're an expert. Because you know. You're smart enough. You know that people are wrong. You can identify their faults. And when you identify their faults, because you're the expert, that leads to number two, a harsh spirit. You're not a coach. You're not a teacher. Those of us who have pride issues, some symptoms and things that come out, we have a harsh spirit. We speak in a hard way to our spouse, to our kids, to our employees. It just comes out. Because, hey, we're the expert. But here's the thing. Not only do you have fault-finding and a harsh spirit, but there's superficiality in prideful people. What does that mean? That means that many times prideful folks expect more out of others than they do out of themselves. So they're superficial. They're fakes. They want others to meet their expectations, but that's for other people. Not for them. So number four. Number four is this. 
Defensiveness. One of the symptoms of pride is defensiveness. Here's what that means. A prideful person never, ever, most never takes the blame. Never owns it. That teacher gave me a failing grade. You ever heard that, mom and dad? That teacher doesn't like me. They never own that they're the one who did the work that caused the failing grade. There's always someone else to blame. Hey, I didn't get that promotion. That, my supervisor didn't give me my promotion. That supervisor has it in for me. Well, you know what? If you didn't get to work 10 minutes late every day, that supervisor might have considered you a little more of that job. People that are pride or defensive, they never, ever own what they do. Presumption. Presumption before God. I don't know how many people I talk to. I'm mad at God. You know why they're mad at God? Because God didn't answer a prayer or God didn't do what they prayed to God to do. So because their God wasn't a genie in a bottle, they're mad. You know why they're mad at God? Because they want God to be at their command. They want God to do what they want. So a prideful person makes those presumptions before God. You know what prideful people do? They're desperate for attention. Right now, I'm desperate for attention. Here's how I can tell I'm desperate for attention. Some of you folks are plugged in. You're listening. Some of you can't wait till we say amen. See you next week. I'm trying to figure out how to get you plugged in. Because I'm, I'm desperate for attention. You see that word? You see what word I used? I will use the word I. Whenever you use that word I, you put the focus on yourself and take the focus off God. And finally, one of the final symptoms of prideful people is you neglect others. You neglect your spouse, you neglect your kids, you neglect your employees, you neglect your job. You know why you neglect others? Because you're so focused on you. That's why. It's all about you. So you neglect other people around you. That was kind of painful, all right? I'm just going to tell you, there wasn't any pleasure in going through those seven, okay? But we had to go through those seven to get this next question. The next question is this. How can I get from pride to clothe with humility? How can I get from pride to grace to the humble? How can I get from pride to mercy for others? Because you see, all those words, humility, humble, mercy, those are anti-pride words, all right? You can't be prideful and be clothed with humility. You can't be prideful and walk in that grace to the humble. You can't be prideful and mercy to others. And sometimes it's hard to give mercy to others because that mercy means people are at fault. But you have to give them mercy to walk with them and continue in relationships. So here's some things to say. So I don't, Here's the handlebars. So things to say. If you're a prideful person, 
This is going to help you get out of the ditch. How can I or how can we help? So instead of criticizing somebody or being critical or always finding faults, you see that fault and you say, how can I help? What can we do to help? This next word. Some of us have a problem with this. It's yes. Repeat after me. Yes. Man, y'all are a whole lot more awake than that 930 crowd. I don't care if you tell them that. Yes. Here's the thing. Those of us who are prideful, we like to say no. You know why we like to say no? Because we like to argue. And we like to argue because we're right. Listen. I used to coach baseball. I coached baseball in college, and I coached baseball in high school. And you know what? There was a part of me that just loved to argue with umpires because they were wrong most of the time. But here's the thing. I never want to argue. I got thrown out of some games. But I never want an argument. So if you want to walk in that humility and put on that, the cloak of humility, sometimes you just got to say yes. And that's hard for some of us because we really like to argue. Here's this next one. This next one you have to say in your mind. This is not something you can say out loud. You have to say it in your mind before you can say it out loud. And here, maybe I was wrong. You see, you got to own stuff in your mind and in your heart before you can own it out of your mouth. Let me tell you, um, I didn't realize how jacked up I was till I got married. <laughs> Some of y'all are laughing because you didn't realize how jacked up you were till you got married. <laughs> All right? I, did, I was messed up. And, and, and being married and being one with, I'm married way over my head, Okay? But being married exposed all this junk and pride in my life. And, 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 and I would mess up. And I'd look at my wife. And here's what I would say. Well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Or I'd say this. I was banned from saying this after about two years of marriage. I would say this. Uh, I won't do that anymore. Yeah, I won't do that anymore. And, and next week later, I, I won't do that anymore. Same thing. I won't do that anymore. Hey, it was a cycle because here's the thing. I couldn't admit I was wrong. And when I learned to say these three words, man, it made our marriage relationship better. And we grew together instead of growing apart. These three words were, I was wrong. And here's what I want to do. I want to coach you. I want to teach you, okay? So we're going to say these one at a time. Repeat after me. I, I was wrong. wrong. Okay, now here's what y'all just did. Y'all just said three words. So here's what we have to do. We have to put those three words in a sentence, okay? And here's the challenge. I want you to use these three words. Listen, let me stop. Hey, I had to use these three words with our production guys this morning. I messed up. I messed up big time. I had to use it with our production guys. I had to use it with Daniel. And I'd say I was wrong. Okay? And uh, I don't think it made them feel any better. It made me feel better. 
because that caused more work for them. All right? So repeat after me, I was wrong. Some of you got it. Okay, some of you are still not going to say it. But listen, in the name of Jesus. Say, I'm going to use Jesus on this one. I'm going to Jesus juke you. In the name of Jesus, please repeat after me. I was wrong. I was wrong. You know what? When I began saying those three words to my wife and my kids, Man, there was a freedom that came over me. Because you know what? I am jacked up. And as soon as I realized how jacked up I am, I realized the mistakes that I made. And as soon as I could start admitting those, man, there was freedom in that. I want you to walk in that freedom. Please try to say that today. Or some of y'all aren't going to make mistakes today. My bad. Say it to sometime this week. That's your goal. Sometime this week, say it to somebody. I was wrong. And almost just as important as I was wrong, some of your spouses, some of your kids need to hear these words. I trust you. Some of us need to quit micromanaging our kids and just simply say, I trust you. And then here's what you do. You pray like crazy. God, help my kids make good decisions. Man, I pray this over my kids every day because my kids are dumb. They are. <laughs> I do. Every day I pray. God help them. And now, see, I got to, see, I don't have a daughter-in-law. I have a daughter. So now my son got married in December. If she ever shows up, don't tell her I called her dumb. All right? I called my two, kids, my two biological kids dumb. Not my daughter-in-law. My son married way over his head, too. That's going to come back and get me. But listen. Look at your kids and say, I trust you. And then do that. Pray like crazy for them. Because God gave them to you. He gave, God trusted you to raise your kids. Now just speak into them. Let them know you trust them. That'll keep you from micromanaging your kids. But then pray like crazy. Let's keep going. Things I can say. We and not I. Man, you use that word we. You take that I out of your vocabulary. You know, as you're discipling, as you're teaching, as you're as you're uh, leading your, your children or your family, you use the words we. You can use that word in, as an employee and as a supervisor relationship. Use we, not they. They indicates that you're not part of we. Here at Rockbridge, we're one church in five locations. That way, when we do stuff church-wide, you'll never hear Sam say, they told us to do that. I'll never, ever say that. At Rockbridge, we're not a they. We are a we. Here's another three words. This will change, these three words will change how people react to you when you're confused about what they've done, all right? Instead of looking at people saying, instead of looking at your kids or your spouse or an employee or an employer and say, why'd you do that? You back up, because why is kind of an accusation. Prideful people go, why'd you do that? Because we're always right. So take a step back and try these three words. Help me understand. Help me understand what happened in this, quote, circumstance or situation. That help me understand takes all the defensiveness off of you and off of who you're talking to. And you can have awesome communication. Because when you land on that, why did you? That puts you as the expert. I see you may need help. 
you know, instead of criticizing somebody or finding fault, man, you jump in there and you say those words, I see you may need help. And finally, how can I serve? Because you see, one of the things that a prideful person does that's just a characteristic is they neglect people, neglect others around them. So if you change your mindset to serve others rather than being served, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, hey, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to be a sacrifice for many. So those are, those are things that you can say to help your relationship. Now, here's the thing. Here's also some things that you can say to help your relationship with God. And I try to pray this one prayer every day. Father, I need you more than ever. You see, you're taking, you're taking you off the throne of your life and you're placing your dependence upon God. Jesus, I can't do this alone. I need you. And I know what it's like to parent teenagers, okay? Here's the deal. You can't do it by yourself. You need help. And Jesus is the best help you can get. You can't do it alone. I need you. And finally, Holy Spirit, please help me keep my mouth closed. I used to pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, please let me know when I need to say something. I had to change. Because I always got something to say. So I started praying this prayer when I'm in certain situations. Holy Spirit, help me keep my mouth closed. And I would listen to the Holy Spirit. And uh, sometimes he would prompt me to say something. All right? I'd fight back a little bit. Oh, no. I pray to keep my mouth closed. And if he prompted me again, or maybe the third time, then I would open my mouth and say it. But I'm praying to keep my mouth closed in order that I don't say something that benefits Sam or dominates the situation. So that's what we can do. Finally, things to do. Now here's the thing. I got you a to-do list. All right? I got you some things to say. All right? Now I'm going to give you some things to do. And I just need to, I'm going to, I've been completely transparent this morning and you're going to continue to be transparent. You know, for the last six weeks, I've tried to do these six things. I've tried to do these three things before I ever got out of bed in the morning. Number three, we're going to count them down. Three, two, one. Number three, expressing thanks to God. Before I ever get out of bed, my feet hit the ground. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing in my life and what you're going to do in my life. I'm thanking God for who he is. Number three. Number two, acknowledging your need for God. Just a few minutes ago, y'all sang the song, I need you every hour. You see, before you get out of bed in the morning, if you acknowledge your need for God, I mean, you're going to take, that, that pride's going to take a step back. And you're going to put God in front. God, I need you. I need you more than ever. And finally, number one, if you can't do two and you can't do three, before you get out of bed every morning, try to do number one. 
reflect. Reflect on the wonders of the cross. Y'all to be still just a second, okay? I want you to look up here at the cross behind me. I want you to get that mental picture in your eyes. So we're in a battle with pride. And in the mornings before you get up, if you can reflect on the wonders of the cross. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to practice. I want to talk you through on how to reflect on the wonders of the cross. I want to ask you to close your eyes. And I want to ask you to see that picture of the cross in your mind. I want to ask you to see Jesus hanging on that cross. He's a naked and he's a bloody mess. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's got spikes driven through his hands. His side is pierced from the soldiers. His feet are pierced with spikes. And the only thing that he's given to quench his thirst is vinegar on a nasty sponge. You see him on that cross. And I want you to scan. I want you to scan down in your mind's eye to the bottom of that cross. And there you are. You're standing. You're kneeling. But you also have something in your hand. You got a hammer you have a wooden mallet in your hand because you see it's your sin and it's my sin that put Jesus on the cross he's giving you and I grace and mercy because he's the sacrifice on the cross you want to begin or start or in the process of fighting that pride battle. John Stott writes this. Every time I look at the cross, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin that I'm bearing. Your curse I'm suffering. Your debt I'm paying. Your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. 
until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is here at the foot of the cross. We shrink to our true size. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this on reflecting on the cross. There's only one thing I know that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do it. When I see that I am a sinner, that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I am humbled to dust. Nothing but the cross can give us a spirit of humility. And in just a few seconds, Daniel is going to lead us in the wondrous cross. And I'm just going to ask you to stay seated in that posture of reflecting on the cross. Unless you need to come forward to the stage area and pray, or you can kneel right there where you're at and pray. And maybe God's calling you to repentance. Maybe God's calling you to deny yourself and follow Him. But just in these next few moments, as you reflect on the cross, just be real. Be transparent before God Almighty who in due time will lift you up because he cares about you. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, continue to soften our hearts, open our minds.